listening to First Church Charlotte. Lesson three of our series, Love and Holiness. And we've been talking about how we are made whole through the work and the restoration and the completion of love in our life. And our theme verse is actually 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse number 23. And we read it in the message translation just because of the word choice. And you've heard me read it now three times. May God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, say it with me again, holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together. Somebody say, put me together, Lord. Yes, put me together, Lord. Spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. And so our goal in this uh, series has been to talk about one of the strongest human experiences that any of us live through or experience in our day-to-day life, and that is this, this thing we call love. And as I have been showing you and teaching you and talking about, there are five loves that are identified by the philosophers. Uh, the Bible only honors four of them. And you will perhaps remember, uh, storage is family, phileo is friends, agape is divine or selfless love, and eros is romantic love. And then the fifth love that the Bible does not acknowledge as love is epithumia, which is want, desire, or, or lust. And so we must, if we have any sense of our own needs, if we're self-aware at all, uh, we realize how we are incomplete in ourselves. Until you understand your essential incompleteness, um, you're always going to set yourself up for more frustration than healing. You must have enough self-awareness and insight to see you need other people. None of us are islands. Even in the most desperate prisons of our world, the worst thing you can do to someone is solitary confinement. Um, We need one another. We've talked about this a good deal. I I don't want to belabor it, but I do want to, before I go any further, just say again uh, why the Bible does not acknowledge epithumia or lust, want, and uh, desire as a love. It's not that the Bible does not acknowledge this as a real human experience. This is very much a part of, of being human. It's that it is unworthy of being called a true love. Why is that? Why would we say that desire, want, and the like Lust is a false love, and and here's why. Also, before I get much further, let me remind you that my resource notes are available on the website, kind of a gathering of of resources and thoughts that have gone into this. Um, Why is epithumia, lust, passion, the like, why is it a false love? Because want is (laughs) pretending to be commitment. It is, uh, epithumia is want, pretending to be commitment. It is possession, pretending to be affection. It is lust, pretending to be covenant. And yet, it's very much a part of the human story. 
If we try to pretend as though we haven't this within us, then we have set ourselves up for ignorance as to how the enemy will attack us and how our own flesh will lead you astray. If your version of love does not have commitment in it somewhere, it's not love. Now, you can sing whatever love song you want to sing. You can talk about, you know, not looking for Mr. Right, but Mr. Right now. Um, You can talk about, you know, justifications. Ooh, baby, but I want you so bad. And I want to try to be good, but you make make it so hard. And you can have all the love songs and all the poetry you want to have. But at the end of the day, if your love does not come with commitment, then it is a false love. Call it epithumia, call it lust, call it want, call it wishing. Talk about how thirsty you are. But don't call it love. See, I shocked all my millennials. They were like totally zoned out, and then I went millennial, and they're like, my God, somebody's preaching up in here. Yes. Um, So the last two Sundays, we talked about love as God's plan to make us whole. I want to continue along that, and I want to... I want to remind you at the outset that although each of us are framed as independent beings and entities, we will not know completion until we are joined to others. We've talked a good bit about Adam placed in the garden by God and being given everything he needed. Uh, Adam is given place. He is given provision. He is given protection. He is given mastery. He is, and I read all scriptures for these, in our first, our first lesson of this series. We need all of those things. We need provision. Can I have an amen from everybody who secretly thinks they need a raise? Yeah, I got a big amen over here. Um, uh, we, all of us need provision. Not only do we need provision, but we also need protection. How many of you know that God is able to keep you? How many of you know God is able to protect you? You need protection. You need provision. You need protection. God gave Adam both of those things. You also need mastery. Even if you were a trust fund baby like uh, Pastor Anthony and you didn't have to work every day because you just had too much money, you would still seek mastery because that's how God made you. You might try to be the master of a sport or a hobby or a nonprofit organization, but you would not happy. You would not be happy unless you sought after mastery. We all of us need mastery or we are incomplete in ourselves. God gave that to Adam even when Adam was perfect. It was not given to Adam after he fell. It was given to him before he fell. That's why if you have a business within you, you should see about how to make it happen. If you have a desire to pursue a career, you should try to make that happen. You should embrace mastery. It's part of who you are. Uh, Finally, what did Adam have? He had the presence of God. He had the presence of God. God walked with him. Even so, God looked at Adam and said, there's something he lacks. And you know the story of how God saw a reality in Adam. He needed something he did not have. Even when he was perfect, he needed something he did not have, have. And that was manifest. That was manifest by God giving him Eve. And the Lord said, now that is good. Here's the thing. Eve did not fix Adam. Eve completed Adam. If you want a sure shortcut to relationship trouble, try to have someone fix you rather than complete you. In other words, you have a lot of work that have nothing to do with you finding that special someone. 
my God, that's some fine preaching. Just make it down, break it down. Just take your time, brother. Take your time. Thank you. I think I will. There's a lot of work we have to do in place, provision, protection, mastery, and the presence of God before we need to worry about anybody else fixing us. When you have these things, now you might can be given uh, the next thing. You might can be given completion, but we should not think that someone will fix us. That is a shortcut to misery. Don't have time to preach about that today. Um, I want to, before I get into my props I have up here, I've got some fun props. And before I get into that, I just want to remind you that God self-defines. Somebody say self-defines. He self-defines himself as love. And that word comes with a whole freight train of human meaning and human understanding. God will self-define with other words, but they will be more metaphorically instructive. They will be more uh, dynamically uh, insightful. God will say that he is spirit, and yes, he is spirit, but that does not hit you like a ton of bricks. That's not lived experience so much as it is insight to self and the nature of our being, okay? God will define himself as light. And you'll say, yes, that's helpful. He illuminates the darkness. That's helpful. But it's like a metaphorical instruction. It is insight, but it does not hit you like Muhammad Ali. But when God says he is love, that comes with freight train loads of human experience. And he doesn't just say it once. He uses it more than any other definition of deity. There are theological consequences to this because he is not saying, God is not saying he is the source of love. There would be nothing uh, difficult about that. Uh, All religious leaders, teachers, uh, ideologues claim to be the source of of, of love. That would not be the thing that would shock you. You could even say he's the path to love. It's true, but that wouldn't be very shocking. You might say he's the giver of love. That would be true, but not very shocking. But God does not use love as verb. He uses love as name noun. He uses love not to describe what he does, but who he is. He's not saying love is my activity. He's saying love is my essence. Now, this is a little complicated, so I don't want to spend too much time here. Later on my today, driving home, my wife may say to me, honey, I loved you. You look beautiful today. I'm so glad to be with you. Did you ever say? Anyway, and then she'll say, but that was confusing. (laughs) I don't want to be confusing, but I want you to see the statement, the theological statement of self-definition that God is using when he uses noun, love as noun, not simply love as activity. Okay, so we're going to look at how God places in your life, love, to help you become, to help you self-discover, to help you create, and to help you define. I'm going to use this image before we get any further in here. In the beginning, the world was, let's say it this way, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth, and the earth was what? Without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and then God speaks divine order into chaos, let there be light. Okay, so all of us emerge 
from chaos to order. There is not many beings more chaotic than a newborn baby. A newborn baby is, as we've talked about, uh, tremendously helpless. And, and not only that, but for the first five years of their life, um, they, are, they are profoundly dependent. And um, we've extended that now. And uh, when I was growing up, it was the first 15 years of our life we were dependent. And the millennials say the first 25 years of their life, they're dependent. So let me have some money for lunch. That's funny. I don't care what y'all say. I love you suckers. Anyway, so... <laughs> I just get some pastoral entertainment there, sorry. Um, so so this, the first five years of life, what the child is experiencing is not just their, their story, it is their becoming because they're moving from chaos to order. They don't know who they are. All they know is the warmth of their, mo- their mother and their father. That's all they know. They are entirely helpless and everything they experience is part of the formative being they will become. If they experience tremendous stress in those years, it will express itself psychologically later in life. More. It will express itself physiologically later in life. This is not the opinion of a religious lecturer up here. This is all established science, both biological and sociological. The last two Sundays, I've referred to some of these studies. I'm not going to do it today for time's sake. We, all of us, emerge from chaos to order. That child that looks you at the first time, they can't even focus their eyes on you. Uh, their, their mind is all just uh, the, the neurons that fire. There's no receptors yet. And so that's why they just can't control their eyes and they're they're just looking around. Everything is just firing at the same time. It's chaos. But as they learn control, they learn to dampen those same firing neurons. And now they can turn their head to a sound. Now when they recognize their mother's face, they smile. And when they recognize their father's face, they think, oh, my favorite toy. (laughs) Because the role of the father in the first five years is to be the baby's favorite toy. That's correct, fathers. Go forth, you are healed. So um, this is their becoming, this is their, their, their emerging from chaos and disorder into who they are going to become. And they will learn more quickly in these formative years than any other time of their life. And they, they emerge. Now this is not just true individually. This is not just true with the beautiful babies that we have in the church that I occasionally try to steal kisses from. Um, it's more than that. This is also true spiritually. When we first come into a relationship with God, there's so much we don't know, and yet we have joy, we have this kind of uh, longing, and uh, yet there's so much we don't know, but over time, we grow in maturity. This is why the Apostle Paul spoke to the church and said, hey guys, you guys are are focused on things that really should be uh, done with. You're, You're too immature in the things you are focused at. We should move on to more mature things. Why? Because becoming whether it's in our physiology, whether it's in our spirituality, whether it is in our maturity, whether it is in our abilities, it is all of it. A journey from chaos to order. How does God lead people in all of these arenas of life from chaos to order? He does this uh, by demonstrating love in the life and in the literal lived experience of Babies, whether they are of a natural 
babies as in your babies or spiritual new believers brought into the family of God. So I want to I show you these four loves uh, in, in, as, as teaching moments and teaching examples in, in the following way. The very first love that a child experiences is agape love. It is selfless. It is um, unequal. The parent has very little to gain from the child. The child is dependent upon the love that it cannot in any way be a part of. It can only receive. It is utterly helpless. And if God did not make you parents to feel your greatest fulfillment when you held that little bundle of tears, joy, and dirty diapers, if you did not find yourself so created by God to fulfill, to feel as though the whole universe had just come into fruition, uh, there would be no other reason to put up with that bundle of trouble. Can I have a big amen? But God has so created you that the most the closest experience any of us have with agape love is that moment when utter helplessness is made whole by love. We have nothing to offer in return. We can't wash the dishes. We can't even control our bodily functions. We certainly aren't ready for rent. It's really a shame that they're not ready for rent because that could really be a blessing. But it's absolutely, somebody say, dependent upon the generous love of another. This is the closest we get to agape love in this life, okay, in our lived experience. That's the first experience of the child, to have this, I, I, I just, uh, take care of me, love me. I have, I have nothing to offer. Uh, love me. And one of the tragedies that is against nature and against God's design is when a parent is so broken that they cannot find how the whole world comes together in the agape love to a helpless being. And the most wounded people that you will ever try to minister to are people who did not experience selfless love when they were helpless. That's the first love. The second love you experience as you begin to crumb into who you are is not just the selfless love of your parents, but it is the love of family. You now have a sense of we are a unit against the world. This is the love of affection. This is the love of, of we are one. We are, this is, this is what the, the Greeks would call storage, and it, it is the family love. That's my, that's my daddy, and that's my mommy, and that's my brother. It's like, Ellery was growing up and she, could, she couldn't say daddy but she'd say dada and she couldn't say mommy yet she'd say mama and she couldn't say brother so she'd say bubba daddy, mama and bubba okay that is the first picture of family we are rising we are no longer quite helpless we're no longer quite useless <laughs> now we're a part of a family I have chores. That's my brother. Don't pick on my brother. That's my brother. My job is to pick on him, not you. That's my family. This is us. Don't mess with my family. I'll slap you like it's 1999. It's my family. I get to kill him, but you don't. 
That's the second love. You are becoming, you are rising. The next love you experience, all of this is an ushering from chaos to order, whether self or spirit, okay? Say this, the next thing you experience is friends. After you are grazing, you start making friends. You start having play dates. You start having friends come over. You start hanging out with good people and bad people at school. You have the people your mom and dad want you to be friends with and the people your mom and dad think secretly are a useless waste of American space. I try to speak the truth in love, dearly beloved. And they, you're now the product of these loves. Every one of these, whether it is the unworthy acceptance where you're utterly helpless, you're utterly unequal, you can only receive... From that to we are family, from that to we are friends, we choose to be together. We're not bound by blood and need. We're not held within the walls of creed and family. We choose to be together. Why? It'll start with common interests. It'll start with common goals. It'll start with proximity. It will start with going to the same school, playing for the same team, enjoying the same hobbies. You are now choosing. You see how you started with this profound, unequal love. And that helped you rise out of chaos. And from there, you had a family. And that helped you rise out of chaos. And from there, you developed friends. And that helped you rise out of chaos. Every one of these examples is not just teaching in the life of childhood development, but it's teaching in the maturity of a believer in a local church. We all start at an altar, helpless, utterly dependent on a work that we could not even touch. We could not even face it. We could not even reach for it. But God, in his infinite mercy, so loved us. He so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, come on somebody, that's where it started. And from there, God adopted you. I said God adopted you. You're no longer an orphan. He gave you... He gave you his name, and you are no longer an orphan. You belong to the family of God, and that wasn't enough. He started to knit you together with other believers. You started making friends, and not only that, but God became your friend. All of these teach us, and they're all the path to becoming whole. 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 And now your relationship with God is not dependent on him being able to do something for you you can't afford. But now you have common interests. You have common hearts. You're no longer strangers. You're no longer slaves, duty, law, obligation. Now you're friends. We want to see the same things happen. And now, the final love that teaches us something is eros, romantic love. And this love is not the, not the domain of children. There are occasionally children who think they understand it, um, but they're really just setting themselves up for a profound and tearful life lesson. That's some good preaching. Just, just keep going there. Um, but as you get toward your later teens and you are more fully emerging as who you are, now you are ready to start having openness opportunity, interest in romantic love, eros. Okay, the teaching of the scripture does not end with this love. It's not like these things are okay for the preacher to talk about, but the preacher shouldn't talk about eros because, you know, that is weird. No, 
God chooses Eros as a lesson of spirituality so profound. He took one whole book and used Eros as the teaching example. Okay, so I want to, I want to for a moment here, talk about these jigsaw puzzles. Um, I feel particularly cool today because I have props. I'm not, normally not a, a very proppy preacher, um, but today I'm just too cool for school. And so whether I do good or not, you have to give me a compliment because I have props. And so um, uh, this is a, uh, a jigsaw puzzle of the solar system. And solar system is pretty big, so um, we're going to use this as a more complex puzzle representing the solar system. And over here, this is a local picture. I think this is a canal in the, in the Netherlands, something like that. And uh, we're going to use this as a more local, a local picture. And we're going to use these pieces uh, to teach us some lessons. And uh, before I get too far into it, let me, let me make sure I cover my bases. The first thing, reminder, um, we all of us emerge from chaos to order, and we all of us seek to make sense of who we are, who we want to be, what we're willing to pay for, and how our journey is going to unravel and be, and be discovered. This, this is what it means to become. And all of us uh, are on this linear path, bound by time, moving from the old us to the new us. And we all of us are trying to make, make some sense of that. And the Lord will emerge us from chaos to order, whether it is in the physiology of our natural state. He will use the love of parent, the love of family, the love of friend for us to become. And as we move into adulthood, he will use the love of of Eros, the love of pairing or not being made, um, not being fixed, but being completed. And so the lessons are woven through all the word of God. The Lord will use the image of uh, parent to teach us. He will use the image of family sibling to teach us. He will use the language of friendship to teach us. And finally, although it's not often celebrated, he will use over and over again the image of romantic love, eros, the love of the heart, the love of uniting to teach us. This is woven through the scripture. Us preachers don't always do a good job of defining it in this way, uh, but it is there over and over again. So, a child, a child goes from the early years where they, all they know is the care and the, the love and the affection of their parents to having a sense of their family and their place. And thus they move from agape, unequal, receiving, selfless love on the part of the parent, desperate need on the part of the child. They'll go from that to family love and from that to friendship. And so this is a more local picture and, and uh, I, I'm going to use it to refer to the, 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 the becoming, the self-becoming, moving from chaos to complexity. A person has to figure out who they want to be and then they have to aim for that. If you've been blessed to be raised in a godly family, you have a tremendous blessing upon you because your parents have lived a picture in front of you of what a healthy life looks like. If you've been blessed to be placed in a circumstance like that, you see, the point of parents is not to live a perfect life, but to show your kids how to live a healthy life. That's not even the same thing. And you say, I can't represent a, a picture to my children of what, uh, you know, uh, this perfect life. No, you need to show your children how to be a Christian in the middle of bad times. 
It's not just good times that you need to teach your children. The bad times are just as powerful a teaching example. You can teach your children how to have a fight with your spouse without ever losing your Christianity. That's the picture you're painting for them. You're not painting a trust fund baby picture for them where everything's perfect and they win every bet. That is a lie, and it would be profoundly unhelpful for them if that's the image you try. Don't play make-believe for your children. Do the other. Let them see the fact that it's hard, but you choose the right. And so if you fight with your spouse, show them how a Christian fights. And when you're wrong, apologize. Can I have a big amen? Make things right. Show them. You don't have to always agree because if you teach them that in your life there will be disagreements, but when you're wrong, apologize. You will have given them a gift and you will have blessed them in their life. And they have a picture of how they should work and how they should be in the earth. Show your kids how to have a daily devotion. Show your kids. Don't Don't try to show them outcome. Show them endeavor. You can't always control outcome, but you can control the endeavor, the pursuit, the action, the effort of your life. Show them how you value church. Don't make church just if you're in the mood and when it's easy. Show them how you value church because if you raise them with the sense that we value church, you will have blessed them. You're showing them a picture and as they come of age, they're going to look at this picture and they're going to decide, is that the kind of person I want to be? This is becoming. Is that the kind of person I want to be? Is that the kind? You see, you're forming them. You just don't get to choose how you're forming them. I don't want to sound pretentious or vain. I have the same problem. I don't want to be the person who realized, oh, I was forming them all right. I was giving them a list of things they were not going to do. Some of you grew up in houses where you have a list of things you're never going to do because they painted a picture for you all right and you decided you would never put that picture together. Your life may be in pieces, but when you start putting this picture together in your life, you'll be like, "Uh, no, no, we're not doing that. And they turn away from it. When you've been so damaged by that, you would rather leave your life in pieces than paint the picture of the people who hurt you. And so, here's your life. You're becoming. The first love you get, oh, I'm, 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 I'm having just pieces. I'm making a mess. This is a great metaphor for you. Learn from the mess on the floor. You, you look at these pieces of your life and, and, and your family uh, literally starts helping you bring order from chaos. Parents take care of you. Let me, uh, just, just by way of, of, of interest here, um, I, you know there's clubs that do, uh, that do jigsaw puzzles? They just love them, some jigsaw puzzles. We have at least one jigsaw uh, nerd here today. Um, Dee Dee loves some jigsaw. She's not even going to look at me. She can jigsaw yourself like you wouldn't believe. And um, some people just love jigsaws. They would sit up all night to do this, and that just is a ruin of a good night to me. And... Um, <laughs> um, so there's clubs that, that work jigsaws. And so I, I actually found one of these clubs this week when I was thinking about all of this. And they, they have strategies where if you're not good at jigsaws, where to start. Number one, turn all your, feast, uh, your pieces facing the right way up. They said people in the beginning will just turn the pieces they're working on right side up. They said turn them all right side up because you don't even know what is possible unless they're all right side up. That's pretty good life advice right there, isn't it? Get 
your life right side up. Quit letting pieces of it be upside down. All right, moving along. The second advice they give is start with the edge pieces. Start with the edge pieces. Here's an edge piece right here. This side of the piece is straight. This piece has 75% less complexity than the other pieces. And so if I start with the less complex, what I do is I can create a frame. I don't know what the inside looks like, but I know this is the outside of it. This is what parents do for you. All my young people, listen to me. This is what parents do for you. They create a frame. You don't need to know why you can't play on the tracks. Just don't play on the tracks. You don't need to know why we look both ways when we cross the road. Just look both ways before you cross the road. You see the same? Parents create frames. And then there's this whole area that you have to work out. But if you start with the frame, it's the easiest pieces to find. Number three, sort by colors. Look at this picture right here. A third of this picture is yellow. If I just separated out the yellow pieces, I would have two-thirds less complexity in this picture because I separated out the yellow. This is a great teaching example of friendships and how they influence us. We sort things by order. We have common interests. We go to common schools. We have common experiences. We play for the same team. We both have this. We both do that. So it is that these various experiences of the four loves in our life help us get chaos organized into order. The next advice they give is uh, from here, you'll start seeing sections. You've grouped by color, you've created a frame, you'll start seeing sections. And so you reduce the picture into smaller pictures. Come on, this is some good life advice right here. If you don't have uh, one part of your life sorted out, that's not an excuse to quit trying on another part of life. In other words, just because you didn't meet the team doesn't mean you get to quit school. Just because the girl did not say yes to the prom date does not mean you get to quit doing your homework. You have to understand there's different parts to this picture. And even though this over here is a mess, how could she not like me? I love me. And she didn't like me. But this part over here can be pretty ordered. Look at this report card. So it is. Man, I'm doing some fine practical instruction for all you suckers here today. I love y'all. Just let that be a blessing to you. Let that be a blessing to you. And so all of these things are part of the simple to medium complex. And then they have some advice. Oh, the fourth thing was pieces that are obviously special and they're too, they're, they're, they're too complex. Don't worry about them until the end. If they're too complex, you'll never figure it out by looking at the complexity. You have to get all the simple taken care of. Then you have time for the complex. And you have taken con uh, con uh, complexity out of the picture. That's all advice from simple to medium. Now, from medium to difficult, here is some more, uh, some more um, advice. Um, the more complex is to pay close attention to, uh, close attention to shape. Number two, work on small sections at a time. And the most important advice is number three, don't give up. It's okay to take a break, but it's not okay to give up. 
The first love we receive is unconditional, unequal, selfless love on the giver, desperate dependence upon the receiver. The second love we receive is family. It gives us parameters in our life. It creates safe places. The third love we receive is phileo, friendship, grouping, order. And the last love we receive in our life is romantic love. And romantic love, hear me, is the hardest of all the difficulties. So this is our simple picture. This is going to represent our simple puzzle. Over here is the more simple things. Over here is who you are, what kind of life you want to have, what you're going to do. Over here is place, and over here is provision, and over here is protection. Why is this simpler? Because you see all the pieces over here, and you can control all of the places over here. But when we get to error, when we get to romantic love, why is it so much harder? Because over here, you only see 50% of the pieces and you can only control 50% of the places. Someone else has to see the rest of the picture and be willing to do the hard work of placing the piece where it goes. Stay with me. This is why relationships can be so difficult because even if you wanted to do it all, you can't do it all. It's not all in your hand. Even if you wanted to see a picture of this is what our life could be, come on, honey, let's stop with Starbucks. Let's pay off our debt. And uh, he's like, no, I gotta have a Starbucks every day. I'm preaching to some of you guys really, really hard right now. And the other person's like, no, let's pay off our debt. Think how awesome that would be. No, I'm getting three Starbucks today. That's only $20. Times 30, that's 600 a month. But what they count of our retirement will be if we had 600 a month. You can only control half the pieces and you can only place half the pieces. And if you get bound through covenant with someone who wants a different picture than you, you will always live a riven life separated by a grand canyon of different goals, different values, different dreams. So this is super hard because you can only see half the pieces and you only get to define half the picture. The picture is not a vision, it's a negotiation. This is hard. Over here, comparatively speaking, this is half as hard, all right? So I wanna talk to all my young, single, beautiful people. Enjoy being beautiful. It's downhill from here. <laughs> Very few people can do what my wife has done and get beautiful, more beautiful with age. <clears throat> write that down. Take, write that down. All this preaching on love has really worked out well. My wife invited me on a date Friday night took me to Ruth's Chris, told me I had made her life beautiful. I thought to myself, my God, I should have done this in my 20s. <laughs> this, I want, so I want to talk to all my single beautiful people, okay? I want you to understand a few things here. All my single beautiful people, we're glad you're, you're here. We love you. You're the future of this church. I cannot tell you how much I believe you could give 
to the kingdom of God, and I cannot tell you how much I could believe, I can believe in your abilities and talents. Um, do you know how when you're like, let me just uh, even back it down further even to our teenagers, and let me just say a couple things to teenagers. Have you noticed how when you get a girlfriend or a boyfriend, your mom and dad get nervous? You want to freak a parent out? Tell them you have a boyfriend. You, excuse, excuse me? What did you say to me? Oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> you want to freak them out? Get a boyfriend. If you want to really freak them out, give, get a boyfriend before the age of 16. That's false doctrine. <laughs> so this is a quick lesson to all my young people, all my young, beautiful people. This is a quick lesson for you. The reason why it freaks us out when you get serious relationships too soon is because you haven't even got this puzzle together and you're trying to do that one. Because the great error is to think that puzzle will make this one make sense. And that's not how it works. I wish that puzzle made this one easier. That's not how it works. You have a lot. I'm not saying you can't date and have fun in an appropriate way, have great friendships. Just, just respect the concern of us old, not-so-beautiful people who realize how much more difficult that puzzle is than this one. And commit yourself to this vision right here. Because when you, you're never going to have this puzzle done. You'll be 85 years old, you still won't have this puzzle done, but you'll have enough of it done to see the shape of what your life should be. And you'll see the shape of how God could use you. And you'll see the progress you could make and the accomplishments you could have. This one is so much simpler than that one that it almost doesn't even feel like the same kind of sport. And yet this one is how we are completed. I want to show that both spiritually and I want to show that in the terms of natural relationships. Remember when Paul talks about single people, he doesn't say you'd never have eros. He just says you have this unto the Lord. There are some people who because of circumstance and not just that, but calling and spiritual opportunity, they'll never have this kind of a passionate joining with a person here. Paul doesn't say, suck it up, that's the end of it, that's just the way it's going to be. That's not what he says. He says, if you're the single person and you have that place, it's not that you don't have this, it is just redirected from what you would have here on earth to what you can have with your heavenly father because I want you to see I hope I can transfer this in some way although God uses agape to represent our desperate need and his ultimate selfless love and although he uses family to show how we are no longer orphans and strangers but we are adopted and although he uses friends to show how we have hearts aligned over time and we become more like each other when he talks about what the ultimate relationship is between God and humanity he does not use these he uses these that's why the book of the Song of Solomon, the Songs of, Solomon's, of Solomon is a descriptive example of how God ends with 
passionate, desired eros, love for you. Not as need, not as common interest, but as equals who find themselves made whole in someone else. I'm going to show this to you even more. When he talks, when he teaches the church what it's going to feel like when we are ultimately joined together, he does not use the language of parent, the language of sibling, the language of friend. He uses the language of a lover. And he says, I am your bridegroom and you are my bride. And further, when that day comes, we're no longer going to have this unequal status. But we, he says, will be face to face because his words, he will make us like him. We become completed in each other. Yes, as we emerge from spiritual, man, I feel the presence of the Lord here right now. As we emerge from chaos to order, all of these first three loves over here that I've referred to, the parent, the agape love of unequal, I have to care for you, you have nothing to give me, you're helpless, utterly dependent on me, that's the selfless giving love, the love of the parent, to the love of the brother, sibling, to the love of the friend, yes, all that's in the Bible, and yes, I can give you scripture after scripture, but at the end of this story. It's not a story of family. It's a story of romance. It's a story of us finding the up, up, the utmost completion in him. And that's why if you, let let me just, mm, there's so much to say here. We are often guilty of using God as health insurance, fire insurance, and psychological therapy. God fix me, God keep me, God save me. We're over here, fix me, save me. There is a point in our growth where it's not our deliverance that is our only testimony, it's our stewardship. We're no longer desperately needing God to fix everything like a child, but our life has begun to reflect who he is. Because he is in the process of moving us. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with his care and his keeping. I'm just saying there is a progression of spiritual maturity toward the ultimate good, the ultimate completion in one another, where we're not together out of need, we're not servants, we're together because of love. We have been joined together, we are unified together. And I'm almost done, but I I, I will talk more about this. But I want you to see how ultimately this, at the end of all things, will not simply be about father and parent. It will not simply be about brother, because we know he sticks closer than a brother. It will not simply be about friend, and we know that he is a friend to us. It will be more than that. It will be in the same manner that Adam was perfect, and Adam had everything, and God says there's something he lacks and that enjoyment happens. He's not fixed. He's completed. So as our musicians come, I want to, I want to, I want, I hope that I've been able in some way to communicate to you how all of the loves of the Bible are instructive and ultimately are 
guides to your emergence, both as an individual and as a believer. And I hope that you see this is the problem of Old Testament limits where I try to please God so he'll save me. I try to follow law so I'll be good enough. It's not what it was ever meant to be where we are always in desperate need but there is a relationship with God where I'm not just living in fear of the Lord. I am seeing the beauty of the Lord. I'm not just needing him to pay my bills, but my life is an example of how he's made me whole. There is a place of spiritual becoming. And more, there is the natural progression of self where we are, as it were, lifted up by the bootstraps of our experience with love and our roles with parents and our roles with siblings and our roles with friends and finally we are made complete. All of that is in this story. It's all here. But I hope you sense how God has moved heaven and earth not simply to save helpless you, but to be face to face with you and to treat you as his bride. Not the girl down the street who needed to borrow some money. John says this so well, and I'm trying to end here. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love, noun. (laughs) In this, the love of God was made manifest to us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God. It's agape love. But that he loved us. Sent his son to be a covering for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has seen God, for if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Ultimately, it's not about God being a Santa Claus in our life. It's not about God being a sugar daddy in our life. It's not about God paying our college bills, giving us lunch money. Ultimately, the final act is for us to perceive the beauty of the Lord and to spend eternity not as giver and receiver, not as strong and weak, but made equal by love and complete in each other. That's what God's inviting you toward. Would you stand with me all across the house? I'd like to just invite those who would to step out of the chairs they're in and let's come stand across the front. We're going to take a few moments here and we're going to stand in the presence of God and with our own our own thoughts and prayers we're going to turn our hearts toward Him and we're going to strive to perceive the beauty of the Lord. Not just the law of the Lord, not just the duty of the Christian, not just the obligation of the receiver, but we're going to try to behold the beauty of the Lord. And we're going to tell him 
in our own way, in our own style. Lord, I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want to stand with you in heavenly places. That's right. All who will, let's, let's come to the front right now. If, if, if you're visiting and you'd rather stay in your seat, that's fine. This is just an invitation to be close to the Lord. We're not going to embarrass anyone in any way. Our worship team is going to start leading us in worship. All across this house, I'd like you to focus your mind, focus your heart, and say, Lord Jesus, help me to have a sense of you, not just in duty and not just in obligation, but help me have a sense of your love and a sense of what you have done that I might know you in Jesus' name. Set a fire down my soul that I can't contain, that I can't control. Cause I want more of you. I want more of you. Set a our need. Fear doesn't destroy order in the sense of who God is and who you are. You're still in trouble. He's still in heaven. Fear and faithless living, it doesn't, it doesn't destroy those things. You still are desperately needy. He's still God. The problem with living in fear is that it destroys love. It destroys the sense to see the beauty of the Lord. And now you start to see God as an enemy. How could God let that happen to me? How could God have let that happen to me? And now you solve things by being angry at the one you should love. And this, this grinds in our life like a, like a grinding wheel over and over. The mistakes that we make in this regard, we must see the beauty of the Lord. That's why it's so dangerous for us to see through filters of, um, you know, religious bitterness. It destroys love. This is why it's so dangerous for us to, to, to have disorder 
in the church. It destroys love. This is why it's so dangerous to define God by your need. The Bible tells you, let, let, leave that with God. Let God worry about it. Look at the flowers of the field. They're not worried about it. Pursue his presence. This is the point of the upper room. This is the point of the Holy Ghost falling. This is the point of the veil of the temple being split and rent. This is the part of you becoming the tabernacle of the Lord is right relationship with God to behold the beauty of the Lord. Not just make a list of things you ought to do. Not just check what the rules are. Not just perceive. You must pursue the relationship that is available to you with God. Otherwise, it's just more religion. And this is not what we are called to. This is not what Christ died for. It was not why he came and stood in our stead and then transferred his righteousness for our sin. It was all of it an act of love. Lord Jesus, you see every heart here today. I feel, I feel like there's people here today, Lord, that they're, they're being challenged because they, they're seeing how they have, they've been making some mistakes in their approach to you. And they are challenged to celebrate you, to let their fear be reverence and not fear, and let their need be a demonstration of their love, not simply a list of demands they present heavenward. Lord Jesus, help us as a church to walk in fellowship with you. Help us as believers to walk in spiritual oneness with you. That we are more than simply servants. We're more than simply slaves. We're more than even just associates. But we, in some way, are complete in one another. There is a a divine spiritual union that serves all the needs of man and blesses all all the all the reality of our very being and our shaping and we merge in your time and in your way as a bride without spot or or blemish pleasing to you beautiful to you and you are not invisible to us but you are beautiful to us help us to pursue that in Jesus name we pray and somebody say amen Would you lift your hands all across the house? Lift your voices. Give God a shout of praise in this house. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us. Thank you.